1: where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. What does it mean to be American? Playwright and actor Aladine Yula brings his parents' immigration story to Hartford stage. He's also a comedian, so audiences can expect humor, too, as he reflects on his life growing up as a first-generation Muslim American in Spanish Harlem and what he experienced in Hollywood trying to get acting work. Yula's solo play, directed by Che Yu, includes the music of tabla percussionist and composer Avirod Sharma. We'll hear from him coming up. First, joining us on Zoom, Aludin Yula, again, writer and actor, his play Dishwasher Dreams on Hartford stage now through March 20th. Aludin, welcome to our show.
2: Good morning. Thank you for having us.
1: Now, I mentioned that your play is at Hartford Stage. It opened, I believe, February 24th. What's it been like performing in front of an actual audience again?
2: Oh, wow. It's been a blast. I've been in Zoom kind of trapped for it seems like two <laughs> years. So it's really nice to hear and see humans clapping and laughing. It just It's just been pure joy.
1: I mentioned you're a comedian. And so being in the room and seeing the audience respond to you, seeing their faces light up or crack up. I mean, that must be uh, intense. And what makes you want to keep doing this?
2: Yeah, well, it's definitely there's nothing like laughter. I think it's the best medicine in the world. But, you know, my hero and one of my, you know, sort of mentors, George Carlin, said that stand up comedy is the only art form where you really do need an audience to develop and hear where your jokes and where the setup is. So for me, being in front of a live audience is not just fun and joy, but it gets me to really know where we are in this play and how the material is going. So it's really essential to, you know, how effective the show is moving and developing.
1: Let's give our listeners a taste of you in Dishwasher Dreams. Here's a clip from the play where you talk a little bit about your mom.
2: Growing up, My mother had this fear that I was becoming too Americanized. Aladdin, why aren't you becoming a Muslim? This is part of our tradition. You must become a Muslim. And put down the pork chop when I'm talking to you. I tell you to pick up our Quran. I tell you to read and study Muhammad. And all you can tell me is that he floats like a butterfly, he stings like a bee. This is a wrong Muhammad. See, people have no idea how tough it is growing up Muslim. Islam is the marines of religion. My mother made us pray before every meal. No matter where we were, it was mandatory. Welcome to McDonald's. Can I take your order? Would you like fries with that? Bismillahirrahmanirrahim.
1: So Aladine, tell us about uh, your parents, uh, because that's also part of Dishwasher Dreams, uh, how you uh, learned about their immigration story and and how it reflected in your your growing up in Spanish Harlem.
2: Yeah, well, I I grew up, uh, I always make the joke that I grew up in the only Bangladeshi family in Spanish Harlem, which is like being the only Amish guy at a rap concert so i i was the only one in my family that was born in america i was the youngest um my siblings were born in bangladesh so for me growing up i felt like the quintessential new yorker i you know was a big sports fan loved the yankees the the jets the knicks and i listened to hip-hop so i really didn't consider myself a bangladeshi my parents they still held on to their to their to their roots you know they were very cultural they were very islamic And so my mother would wear a sari, my dad, you know, still held Bangladesh close to his heart. So there was kind of like this culture clash between, you know, their generation and and my generation. So what I talk about in this play and a lot of the comedy is what that culture clash is like and how when you're younger, you kind of rebel against that and say that you're not you know, part of that heritage. But you find that as you get older, that you are connected. And as I had these struggles with Hollywood and wanting me to be a stereotype, I found myself, you know, looking back at how did my parents survive in New York during the 40s and 50s when they were young and trying to make sense of, you know, what America was.
1: And you also delve into immigrant history that a lot of people don't know about. And so, can you talk about that? Um, how that's reflected in Dishwasher
2: Dreams? Yeah, me and my good friend, Vivek Ball, who's a um, professor at MIT, we started what's called the Bengali Harlem Project. And I almost got into it accidentally because I saw a picture of uh, my uncles and my dad with Malcolm X in front of Mosque Number no. 7 in uh, the early 60s. And I was curious as to what was this picture. And I found out that my father and my uncles, they had restaurants in Harlem. And their main, main clientele was the Nation of Islam. Because, you know, if you're Muslim, you have to eat halal food. And all of the Bengali men that came to New York, they were practicing Muslims. So all of their restaurants were um, halal food. So I found out that these men from 1880 to 19, late 1950s, they had all jumped ship on steamships. So we did all this research and found out that there was a lost history of men that arrived in America from what is now Bangladesh and married African-American women and Hispanic women. And they created these families. And in essence, they created what is now the Indian restaurant business. So the whole culinary culinary industry that is in New York, that is Indian restaurants, was really trailblazed by these men. And I felt like we should acknowledge and really, you know, give them credit so, of course, that's the academic you know approach to it. I look at it as an actor and a playwright. Well, what was their stories like? What did they experience? How did they love? How did they navigate? How did they deal with the conflict of being caught in a world where they couldn't even navigate the language, yet they still had this dream of owning their own restaurants and being entrepreneurs? So I feel like that story is fascinating, and I never thought of my father as a trailblazer. And being in Hollywood amongst all of the sort of racist Stereotypical auditions I came upon, I looked in myself in California and I thought, wow, what was it like for my father to be having these aspirations of dreams in the 1940s? And he was illiterate and couldn't speak English. So it was at that moment, it was like an epiphany. I was like, wow, I feel like I inadvertently am connected to my parents' struggle.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned uh, these men starting in, in 1850, and so our listeners have heard of the Chinese Exclusion Act, but there was also an extension of that act, the Asiatic Barred Zone, that uh, prohibited South Asians from coming here. And so tell us more about that that history, and I want to hear more about what your father experienced when he came here.
2: Yeah, so, you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act was basically, you know— uh, the American government, you know, passed a law preventing um, Asians from coming to America. But what started happening is like I made the joke. They were like, where are all these brown people appearing from? There were so many um, Indians that were coming to America, and it was just sort of like coming by the numbers. And so in order to stop that immigration, they created what was called the Asiatic Barred Zone. They barred all Asians from coming. So it wasn't exclusively Chinese. They basically were saying no... Uh, Asians are allowed in America. And it was overtly racist. So Europeans, no problem, come to Ellis Island. But, you know, Asians, they didn't want any part of them. So this great country that, you know, holds this tradition of like, we welcome everyone. That's not the correct history of America. America did practice racist laws and the Asiatic Barred Zone is, you know, a fine example of that. But, you know, these immigrants, they, they took lemons and made lemonade. It didn't hold them back. They still found a way to um, jump ship and there was a sort of underground railroad that helped out these uh, Indian men and Bengali men when they arrived in New York. They were set up by friends who put them in, you know, a place. They were in Harlem. There were tenements where they were put up and they got immediate jobs as dishwashers. So once again, this is a fascinating story of how they survived in a world that didn't even welcome them. Yet despite all of that racism and discrimination, they overcame that and were successful. I find that story to be mind boggling. So that's something that I wanted to explore. How did they do that?
1: Again, you're hearing on Where We Live, a playwright and actor, Aluddin Yula, his play Dishwasher Dreams at Hartford stage now through March 20th. Uh, was your dad open talking with you about what he experienced, Aluddin? How did you get these stories out of him?
2: Well, unfortunately my dad died when I was, you know, young and it was very rare for him to talk about it. I would only eavesdrop as a little kid. My older brothers, they knew of some of the stories and subsequently um the last couple of years the last of my parents' friends were still alive. So in I you know I'm doing a documentary for PBS called In Search of Bengali Harlem, where I was able to get a few of them right before they passed away. And of course, I spoke to the children who are now in their 60s. Um, So that was me trying to understand their experience. They were the ones that told me about my father. And so I was able to kind of get a narrative of what it was like and even like what it was like working in a restaurant and having African-American men kind of debate them. So I heard of this one story where Malcolm X, was challenging my my father and my uncles because they were challenging him about what is the true islam and you know to hear them debating malcolm x is fascinating because i used to look at my parents especially my dad as you know fresh off the boat yet you know they were interacting with these civil rights leaders and supposedly whenever a malcolm or a civil rights leader would come to harlem they would put them and have them eat at the um at the places like Ishad Ali's was very popular in 125th Street. Muhammad Ali, Miles Davis um, and all of these people would frequent these restaurants. So I felt like this is a lost history that maybe my father didn't tell me personally, but I've gotten to hear these stories through different men and people who uh, have told these stories. And also the African-American people that were in those restaurants, they remembered, you know, the, the people that worked there. So these South Asian men who were from what is now Bangladesh They I feel like they they may be gone, but they're kind of whispering us to us through ghosts of their stories. So as an actor and a playwright, I wanted to recreate that experience. Mm.
1: You talked about how Hollywood responded to you as you embarked on your entertainment career uh, in Dishwasher Dreams. I believe you play more than 30 roles, uh, again, traveling from Bangladesh to Spanish Harlem and Hollywood. So tell us about what you experienced, Aludin.
2: Well, in the play, what launches the play is me auditioning for this um, Oscar-winning director, and they want me to play this terrorist. So I spend the whole play sort of contemplating, should I take this part or not? And in doing so, I reminisce about my father's experience. So... You know, when I was, I was very young, I was right out of high school. I was doing well as a comedian. And, you know, the next step after doing comedy clubs and, and TV spots as a comedian is eventually TV and film. And unfortunately, in the 90s, I was the only one. I mean, this is before, you know, Hasan Minhaj and all that. I was the only one out there. There were a few other actors. But as far as for comedians, I literally in America was the only one. So I was only getting parts that were, you know, very stereotypical, one dimensional And so I was, you know, unfortunately dealing with that and it made me think about what my parents, my father especially, what did he have to confront in order to create your own business? How do you approach, you know, banks that are, that were discriminatory? So these were all things that I wanted to explore. And I think this is what the play kind of, you know, whether or not it's funny or dramatic, these are all of the themes that are in the play that I think people relate to because they're looking at an America that you don't see in our schools, that is not talked about. And I think in education and history, that's a more authentic uh, look at what these these people had to endure in a time where America was going through its, its own turbulent times of change.
1: So give us an example. You're, you're standing in front of a casting agent. What do they say to you, Eladine?
2: Well, one of the funniest things they say is, they say, well, do it with a Muslim accent. And I would tell them, there's no such thing as a Muslim accent. And so I don't know if they were intentionally being racist, but some of the things that they were saying was out of ignorance. And they didn't take the time to really, you know, think or, or you know, research, you know, the part that I was reading for. You know, they'd make me wear a turban and, and give me a Hindu name. And I would say, you know, most Bangladeshis don't wear turbans and we don't have Hindu names. There are Bengalis that are Hindu, but it's predominantly Muslim. And here's the irony is I'm not religious. So here I am in these you know, auditions, you know, you know, getting sort of uh, discouraged because I just felt like there wasn't, there wasn't any empathy. They just didn't care. And so I felt, you know, here I was trying to correct them and their attitude was like, yeah, 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 just, just do the role. And so I just felt like, wow, you know, I'm on an island by myself. It's really awful. And there's no one to appeal to. So I kind of, you know, just came back to New York, and you know, George Carlin and Paul Mooney, who's Richard Prize writer, they had advised me that you know Hollywood is not going to welcome you. Go back to New York and start your own show. So I've kind of took the longer route, and you know, said instead of going through the system that is, you know, basically wants you to shuck and jive, I just I started doing it by myself. It's a longer road, but I can sleep in my not, sleep at night and look in the mirror and and. You know, like I joke about, I have this real problem in show business. It's called integrity. So it was difficult to keep my integrity, but I was up against this nonstop. And, you know, this was the 90s, and I think things have changed, but it's going at a snail's pace.
1: Right. I asked you about your father. How did you explore your mother's story in Dishwasher Dreams?
2: Well, you know, in this entire project, the Bengali Harlem Project started because I really wanted to know who my father was and I wanted to know not just historical references, which was great, but what did he experience? What did he feel? Um, you know, How did he deal with that? I mean, and there's a lot of sadness because immigrants who come to this country, they suffer from depression, they're isolated. So I went searching for my father and I accidentally found my mother and I found secrets about my mother, what she had to endure. I found out that she was a child bride. I found out about, really, the patriarchy of South Asia. And in doing so, it made me, you know, love my mother even more because I had a very volatile relationship with my mom, very rebellious. But, you know, I, I really just, I felt like I loved my mother even more knowing about her past and the adversity and what she had to endure. Not only did she have to deal with xenophobia and all that, but as a woman, she was dealing with another layer of that kind of oppression. So I feel like, The women, uh, the immigrants who are women, who are female, I mean, they had to endure so much. I feel like I look at my mom like she's a superhero, like one of the members of the X-Men. What she had to overcome Mm -hmm. was amazing. So I took a lot of that for granted.
1: My guest today is Aladeen Yula, playwright and actor, as we talk about his play, Dishwasher Dreams, at Hartford Stage through March 20th. We're going to keep talking after the break. First, here's Snigdasur, founder of South Asian-focused media company The Juggernaut. She's reflecting on the stereotypical roles given to South Asian actors and how that's now changing.
3: Many roles that were about South Asian men were relegated to playing a terrorist or playing uh, a tech worker, like you saw in Asif Manvi in Sex and the City, or to play somebody who worked at a convenience shop, whether it was Appu in the Simpsons, or somebody who was a taxi driver. You saw all of these tropes and more. Understand that South Asians make up 1.8 billion people in the world. You are seeing many of these stereotypes getting upended. So one of the things we speak about at The Juggernaut is the rise of the sexy South Asian in Hollywood. Before, many South Asian men and women were completely or specifically South Asian men were completely emasculated. They weren't viewed as somebody that you could be attracted to or could be an object of attraction or affection or love. And even in this very famous scene in Sex in the City, Samantha stood up on a date and this waitstaff asks her if he can kiss her and take her home. And she says, no. And I think when you see these scenes, they kind of reinforce this idea that if you are South Asian, you're still very much the other. And only in recent years, the rise of shows like Sex education, or never have I ever. You're seeing South Asian characters take on central stage. And I'm really excited to see more and more of that.
4: Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health
5: is funded by Hartford Healthcare. ECMO is a leading edge, life saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. This is
1: Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Have you seen Dishwasher Dreams at Hartford Stage? You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. The play runs through March 20th, written by my guest today, Elodine Yula. Yula plays multiple characters based on his parents' story. They immigrated to Spanish Harlem from Bangladesh, and he weaves in his own personal experiences as a Muslim American embarking on a career in the entertainment world while also coming to terms with his family's immigrant story. Senior producer Sujata Srinivasan reached out to South Asian author Ashani Surya who talks about her upcoming novel All the Hungry Eyes and what it's like to be the outsider. Let's take a listen.
7: In the novel, both characters are confronting what it means to be Indian, and they're thinking through the fact that perhaps they don't fit in either of those spaces very neatly. Um, I think there's an othering in the U.S. of South Asian culture in the way that our culture is considered foreign, often gross. So I'm thinking of how people in my elementary school made fun of Indians for eating with their hands or talking with what they consider broken English. But I also see an exoticization of South Asian culture where white people I know partake in yoga and golden milk lattes. And somehow those exotic elements become part of their identity. So they feel like they themselves are part of a enlightened and authentic culture, which I think can be a flattening of the complexities of South Asian identity. And then on the other hand, growing up in the U.S., I struggled to figure out what it meant to me to be South Asian. I didn't go to temple all the time. I didn't speak really perfect Hindi, which is reflected in my character's I didn't join a Bollywood dance club um, or anything like that. And I think those are ways in which many Indian youth find community. So I felt excluded in that way too. And it took me a long time to figure out that my Indianness exists because I exist and I don't have to play into that identity to be Indian. Mm -hmm.
1: Again, that's author Ashani Surya. Aladine, I wanted you to respond to what she shared.
2: Yeah, that's pretty much what, you know, my experience was growing up in the Spanish Harlem. I kind of rejected the Islamic upbringing that my mom tried to enforce on me. And so, you know, as you heard in the joke, you know, my mother, you know, she was talking to me. and I just I didn't want to hear it. And so I grew up, you know, I was really deep into hip hop. And hip hop is so much of about a rebellion. Well, at that time, it's totally become something else now it's totally been you know sort of compromised but when it started you know in the 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 80s when I was really young I fell in love with it it was counterculture it was challenging the status quo and you know the whole point about hip-hop was they're never going to accept us you know our artwork is never going to be in those institutions so I really reveled in that and I felt like my parents were conforming and wanting me to conform and I for me never felt um a connection to their culture. I mean, it was great for them, but for me, I wasn't really into religion. And so when I heard George Carlin do this bit on religion, I was like, wow, that's what I want to do, because with comedy, it's about dissecting the BS and getting to the truth. That's the best comedy that that I love. So for me being you know Bengali and being Bangladeshi, I didn't really uh, adapt my parents' love for that culture i really love like hip-hop culture and uh i mean my brothers were into rock and so i really fell in love with that world so my parents didn't approve of it so naturally you know i left home when i was you know younger and i felt like the comedians that i you know hung out with that was the aesthetic that i loved so i had friends who were into hip-hop and i had friends who were into comedy so i felt that was my community i never felt like i belonged to a bengali community or a south asian community because i felt like the community that i belonged to was about you know dissecting the truth so it wasn't until i got into hollywood where i got my wake up call where they wanted me to play a stereotypical character and i was just channeling you know my father i would just you know do my father's voice and it would be in the name of allah we will desecrate your nation and i just felt that was part of a minstrel show So it was ironic, you know, like she said earlier, like I didn't feel like I belonged in, you know, the Bengali community because I didn't go to mosque and, you know, I just wasn't in that circle. And then in America, if you look at Hollywood, like I didn't belong in that circle of what they thought a Bangladeshi was. So then these are the issues of identity, like, you know, what, who am I? And then who's the arbiter of who you are, like in the Bangladeshi community? You know, would I be considered Bangladeshi because I don't go to mosque and I'm not, you know, uh, well versed in that culture necessarily. And in American culture, in Hollywood, they didn't see me as a guy from New York. They just saw me as, you know, a stereotypical person from Bangladesh. So these are the kind of the struggles that we deal with. Um, You know, we can be academic all we want, but really what it is, is just being a victim of racism and them kind of othering you. And so um, I know there's a whole controversy about the Apu character and people have asked me my opinion uh, because there's been controversy about it. And I just feel like as a writer, you just should have some nuances to your character and it shouldn't be one dimensional. And as an actor, I have read for so many one dimensional characters. So um, that's kind of how I feel about it. It's, it's identity issues which lead to people having problems in identifying you because they don't know who you are. And then sometimes you're still figuring out who you are.
1: Right. Let's add another layer to this, because throughout your monologues in Dishwasher Dreams, audiences will also hear musician Avirod Sharma, who's a renowned tabla percussionist and composer. He's with us now on Zoom. Avirod, welcome to our show.
5: Hi, thank you for having me.
1: (laughs) Uh, Because you are a tabla percussionist, I wanted our listeners to hear you play. This is a montage from Dishwasher Dreams. that's uh, really amazing to hear you play i know you've been playing for some time your family also teaching uh, students as well so your music complements uh, aladdin's uh, storytelling uh, when i mentioned adding another layer your parents are indo caribbean or you are indo caribbean uh, you lived in the west indies also in india now you're in new york so talk about right. your upbringing and how it influences your music
5: well i mean I, you know, it's it's such a humbling uh, journey. You know, uh, being uh, I'm Trinidadian-born Guyanese American. You know, uh, my folks and I we came to the United States in 1990, and uh, during that time there was a, a huge, uh, I would say, influx of immigrants coming from Guyana and Trinidad, Suriname, and many of the Caribbean islands. And it just happens that you know my parents they they studied a lot of uh, you know music, Indian classical music, the Indian culture and so when they established the east indian music academy in the early 90s you know the the school ended up being like a home a second home for a lot of immigrants coming in to learn their culture and, and music and arts while assimilating into the american culture so you know growing up you know trying to maintain your identity uh, through music and and through scripture and also assimilating into the american environment that was that was like such a challenge. I remember when I came, I, uh, and I, I was, I went to Howard Beach, uh, school in Howard Beach. And, you know, just like one of our, uh, in, in the recordings, you know, I, uh, you know, eating dal and rice or something like that, you know, it was, it was like, you know, kids will make fun of you and all of that stuff as a third grader, you know, growing up. And so, you know, it was, it was interesting. Uh, but as I got older, you know, I saw the impact the school made and I said, you know what, I would love to make an the experiences and uh, that I've acquired over the years, and luckily for me, you know, I'm a professional artist, and, and I've worked with many, many great musicians over the years. Uh, you know, including uh, David Parsons, who's a great dance choreographer. Um, you know, and many, many other great artists. But you know, there's a, also another lost history. You know, from from the Caribbean. Um, you know, as you know, like you said. Caribbeans, uh, that many of them migrate, and believe it or not, now there are more uh, Guyanese here in the United States than its home country, than Guyana itself. And uh, so, you know, in, in a nutshell, I mean, over 170 years ago, you know, Indians migrated, you know, to the Caribbean, and then there was another migration from the Caribbean to the United States and Canada.
1: Mm. So what does it mean to you to be part of Dishwasher Dreams? Because as we heard Aladeen mention, you know, unpacking this hidden history, but also um, the experiences of South Asians today.
5: Yeah, I related so much, uh, you know, with the story. I mean, even though I'm, you know, of Indo-Caribbean descent, uh, you know, we we had similar struggles. And, uh, you know, I think this play is really a homage to our parents. And I really resonated with that. And, uh, you know, as I re- play and i said wow how can i incorporate some of the traditional elements of tabla and uh, also showcase it non-traditionally and and do justice to this play and so as i was composing and creating i really you know it it made it made me feel like you know the gratitude uh, of having the parents that i have the family that i have and and the work that they have done to you know to spread the indian culture here in the united states and and you know i think over time it's all about you know just trying to understand where your parents are coming from i mean yes you know, sometimes because I, I, I'm a youth coordinator and I work with youths all the time, and many times there's there's a lot of that rebellion that Aloudin was uh, you know speaking about, and you know I said sometimes you know if you're fortunate enough you get to travel, go back to your home country, you know get to see and everyone, the, uh, you know, all those things, these nuances, mm-hmm. um, really kind of help you to understand in their journeys and their stories.
1: Yeah, uh, Avi, your um, Zoom is breaking up a little bit, so I'm going to um, switch to Alodine. Hopefully we can get you on the phone uh, while we do that. So, Alodine, sure. talk more about um, the inspiration behind Dishwasher Dreams in terms of, of having this music and Avi's role be part of this.
2: Yeah, I saw uh, Ruben Santiago Hudson's Lokawana Blues, and he had a blues guitarist <coughs> with the solo show. And I just thought it would be incredible to bring the tabla to American theater. And, you know, usually I, I pride myself in being a trailblazer, and I always want to do something original that no one else has done before. And in American theater, no one has has done tablas in, in, in any form in theater. So I thought it was just a radical idea to be performing with a tabla player behind me. I love percussion. I love the rhythm. So if I talk about Bangladesh, Avi can create the feel of Bangladesh through his drums. And if I talk about East Harlem, you know, we can bring that back through the music. So I looked at it as I was very ambitious in trying to create a almost musical. Uh, It's a solo show, but it feels to me like a musical because music is such an intense, integral part of the show. I mean, Avi does sound effects. Uh, We do songs. There's just an incredible feeling where I don't want to just talk about Bangladesh. I want you to feel Bangladesh. I don't want to just talk about East Harlem. I want you to feel East Harlem. So when I walk into Yankee Stadium as a little kid with my father, I want you know the drums to take us there. And this is what I think makes the show totally original and just super entertaining because there's nowhere in American theater that you've seen comedy, drama, uh, movement with tablas. So, I feel like this show it rocks because we have Avi Tablas, and he truly is one of the best musicians on the planet. I mean, he's played with some serious people, so you know I just feel honored that I was able to grab him for the show because he has such an understanding and sensibility, and the way like you know Otis Redding sings a song from his heart—that's the way Avi plays with his tablas. It's just so beautiful to have that you know, for 90 minutes. It's really a treasure as a performer Mm. because we're like having a dialogue on stage and that's what makes this so exhilarating as a performer to experience this every night. That's why I think the audience really responds to this because it's not just a solo show. It feels like something more musical as well.
1: Uh, Avi is with us now on the phone. Avi, so we heard aladdin talking about, you know, he's not just telling people about Bangladesh, but we're help. You're helping bring people there. You're feeling it, and so tell me how you do that with your music.
6: Yeah, I mean, first of all, just let's. To kind of allowed in to, you know to say those nice things, but <laughs> but uh, in terms of the rhythm and accompaniment, one of the greatest challenge, you know, was to be able to do, to emotionally translate, uh, you know, these emotions and sentiments that are, that's in the play through rhythm and percussion, it's, which is a very difficult thing to do. And so going through the the script and working with Che Yu, you know, it really you know allowed me to explore, uh, you know, using. Uh, Rhythms from around the world, Um, you know. So while I mean, there are aspects of Caribbean music uh, rhythm culture that I incorporate. There's aspects of Indian classical rhythm culture that I incorporate uh, from India, um, and from Africa and and from Europe as well. And so I was very sensitive about making sure that I'm representing those traditions accurately through rhythm, and making sure that I you know do justice to the composition. And I think people are really connecting and resonating. Uh, you know, with this piece. After the show, those people come up. Uh, just yesterday, we had a talkback session, and, you know, folks were coming up to us saying, wow, you know, the rhythm really connects with us, and, and it helps to tell the story. So, you know, as a composer, I think I, I've, I've done my job.
1: <laughs> I read a, a, from a theater critic that said that your tabla playing is the heartbeat in this show. Do you think, do you like that description?
6: Yeah, I mean, we all naturally have a heartbeat. We all have a heartbeat, right? So it's a matter of Tapping into that and, and connecting with it, and I think the play does have its own heartbeat, and um, I think the tabla uh, helps to, you know, translate. Uh, again, I think the emotions and the sentiments of all of these the, these nuances that Aladdin displays on stage, it's definitely you can feel that through the instrument. Absolutely.
1: Hello, Dean. Uh, You mentioned uh, earlier about um, how the audience is responding. So who is in the audience? Who do you want to come and see this play? Because, you know, I'm also the child of uh, South Asian uh, parents who immigrated here in the 70s. And so when I talk uh, to people with uh, similar backgrounds, you know, we, we find that we nod at certain stories and we understand the perspective. But who do you want to have in the audience?
2: Well, the best way I can uh, answer that question is I think about what Richard Pryor responded to many years ago when he was crossing over. He was being challenged because, you know, there was a time where he performed for predominantly black audiences. Um, You know, he used to perform for the Black Panthers and Huey Newton. And then when he started crossing over in the 70s, he said, I want everyone to come to my show. And I feel like that for me, I want white people, for example, to be sitting next to a South Asian, a Hispanic, or a BIPOC. And I want that white person to say, oh my god, I didn't know that immigration was racist. I didn't know that what these people had to endure. I had no clue what their challenges were. And wow, I see them, I didn't know America was like that. I want the person of color next to them to turn to that white person and say, now you know what we experience, to share that. That is the beauty of live performance. It is what theater should be. But unfortunately, I think these institutions in America have done safe, you know, of uh, you know, I love Shakespeare, but, you know, Shakespeare is, we've seen 100,000 versions of it. We need new voices that talk about the experience. So when a president says we come from these countries that are less than human, you can say, no, that's not true. I know immigrants, and they're not from those kind of countries. And what they had to endure, they had to endure so much, they have a dignity, we should be honoring them and not dissing them. So when I have our audiences, I want everyone to be there. I don't care what gender or denomination or where you're from. If we can have that shared experience, that's what art is supposed to be.
0: Mm.
1: Avi, I wanted you to respond to that same question. Who do you want to have in that audience in front of you?
6: You know, this this is the beauty of of the arts. You know, it's about opening the hearts of the, the you know of those who are sitting right next to you, uh, get this awareness. And I think this play helps to really create that awareness where, you know, you can you know kind of go across the table and say, hey, you know what, you know, I I didn't know you know your journey was this, and I'm sorry <clears throat> that for whatever reason. You know, there's miscommunication or there's racism or whatnot. It, this play kind of helps you to ask those serious questions about yourself and your place in society and how to connect with your neighbors. And, and I think it really dives into all of that.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the short answer to that is, can we create art that gives empathy to people who you may not normally see as human who are invisible? You know, and, mm-hmm. and like David Henry Wong says, invisibility is death and like for south Asians we've been so invisible and they only see one version of us they don't know that they that we're funny they don't know that like our generation is hip they have no clue they've only seen one version of us which is that apu character on the simpsons mm-hmm. they don't see anything past that they don't see the nuance they don't see the struggle they don't see the humor they don't see just you know uh, us at, in a life. way that's yeah. you know not one thing and I feel as an artist, it's my responsibility, even as a comedian, to show those nuances. And I feel like that's something that we strive to do. And in this show, I think that's what makes it amazing is that white audiences are going, wow, I didn't even know what a tabla was. I didn't know this is what your father had to deal with. And then you have South Asians going, yeah, that's right, brother. Like, Thanks for <laughs> you know, telling our story. That's when you do that as an artist, you know, that's when you're really sort of connecting with something that's beyond just art. You're really creating an emotion of empathy and not apathy, because apathy is what, you know, I feel unfortunately is where America has come to when we deal with immigrants. We don't see them as human. And that apathy is dangerous because we've lost the empathy for them, the compassion for them. And, you know, I don't want to sound like a new age guru, but like as a comedian, I want to show the honesty. I want people to feel like, you know, they do have empathy. I mean, it's a mission that I have, but, you know, I think comedians have gone to the gutters, is my opinion. And, like, you know, I love Richard Pryor and George Carlin, and, and, you know, their comedy is really challenging the audience to really feel and have an empathy for people who are are seen as invisible.
1: Mm. That's Aladin Yula, again, an actor and playwright. His play Dishwasher Dreams at Hartford Stage through March 20th. A pleasure to talk with
2: you today. Thank you for having us.
1: Also with us on the phone, tabla percussionist and composer Avirod Sharma. It'll be a pleasure to hear you perform live uh, before the play ends, Avirod. Thank you for your time today. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. After the break, we're going to talk more about the themes raised in Aludine's play. But first, uh, senior producer Sudhata Srinivasan reached Lakshmi Iyer, author of the children's book, Why Is My Hair Curly? She's a mother of three girls. The older two are adopted and Caucasian. And she shares how people respond to her multiracial family.
4: We are immigrants. We are a multiracial family. Uh, We we are uh, an adoptive family that's in an open adoption so when i was a new adoptive mother i was very very aware of the the outside gaze on my family and then there were overt reactions where um, we were shopping at one of the clothing stores and one of the the people who worked at the store literally came up to me and asked me if i was a nanny i mean i i was taken aback and my children were toddlers then so obviously they couldn't understand what was being as in me, it led me to retrospect, you know, what would make a person comfortable enough to ask another person, you know, where they stand in the equation, when they see a woman with children, the immediate assumption should be either that you're the mother or you're the caretaker, even if you're the nanny, it's really none of, you know, your business to find out. But that, that notion kind of seems to take on a life of its own, um, especially when people see that the children are of a different race, maybe, you know, I don't know, again, I keep replaying that in my head and wondering if the children were African American or, uh, you know, Hispanic, would the questions have been the same? Would there have been an implicit assumption that I I am the mother? But I think it's a larger, uh, you know, it's like holding up a mirror to society. It's like, you know, saying the quiet parts out loud.
1: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. We've been talking about how South Asians are perceived from Hollywood to our local communities. It's the context of a play at Hartford Stage right now, Dishwasher Dreams. Joining us now on Zoom is Bandana Perkayasta, Professor of Sociology and Asian American Studies at the University of Connecticut. Bandana, welcome to our show. Oh,
0: thank you for having me on the show.
1: Uh, We were hearing Aluddin talk about uh, the the stereotypes. We are not all the same, even though there is a a blanket, uh, you know, a brush put upon all of us. And so when we think about even some of the portrayals in movies like Namesake, uh, about how they fit into these stereotypes, can you talk about that?
0: Yes, definitely. And I'm glad you mentioned the namesake, because the namesake in many ways reflects one stream of migration that happened from India and Pakistan at that time. Because uh, Alauddin mentioned the Chinese Exclusion Act, and then the um, Asiatic Board Zone. The gates weren't open again till 1965. And when they were opened, only people with very high skills, and I emphasize the skills, were allowed to come into the US. So in a way, it is an accuracy to look at the namesake. On the other hand, it would be absolutely a mistake to look at that group and say, that's the group that describes all South Asians. And by that, I mean, to ignore the variations within the Indian American migrants, within the Bangladeshi American migrants, within the Pakistani American migrants. So that's one part of the story. In 2005, I actually wrote a book on the children of the first generation migrants and listening to Alauddin and listening to Avirud, it brought back how much of their experiences were captured by the young people who were mostly in college or just uh, graduating college at the beginning of the 21st century. So the story goes beyond the namesake. The story centrally includes Bengali Harlem and there are many other stories and many other inequalities amongst South Asian Americans and those accounts they are now being documented and enacted on stage and on screen. So to pick up another theme of Aladdin, there has been a little change. Mm,
1: just a little. Uh, when we even think about the questions that are asked of, of brown skinned Americans, where are you from? That question persists even if they're second, sometimes third generation.
0: Absolutely, and that question persists in even deeper ways. So if you have what would be a quote-unquote perfect American accent, then the question after where are you from is usually, how did you learn this English? So that hasn't gone away, uh, even for third and fourth generation migrants. And of course, the caricatures that are enacted through shows like Opu or have become the base expectations of people who look brown and foreign. Mm. Even if they have been here for 50 years, for over a hundred years, it doesn't matter how long they have been here. Mm. And accents are just one part of it. The other big part of it, Alauddin mentioned it um, in terms of religion, uh, marking Islam, that if you happen to practice or vaguely identify, or other people are putting you into the category of Muslim, you're automatically considered to be foreign. The same with Sikhism, the same with Hinduism. Uh, Buddhism, interestingly, has been co-opted into that yoga stream that Avirud was talking about. So there are all of these streams that are working out and continue to persist and that's why we all seem to remem- r- to remain forever foreigners. That's mm-hmm. the racism. That's the heart of it.
1: We just have a, a few minutes left, just a couple, actually. Uh, how do you talk about this with your students, Bandana?
0: Yeah. Um, I talk about this with my students by pointing out the colonial collusions, if you will, of immigration laws. But I also very often will center the experiences of women, because it's not ever been about patriarchy within homes alone. It's patriarchy and racism as an intersection in workplaces. So I mentioned highly skilled immigrants before, the highly educated women who also came at the same time, they were not considered to be highly skilled, just that definition led to very different outcomes for people. So putting it within the context that the average student understands better, that is what happens in workplaces, what happens in neighborhoods, what happens when you're out in public places, why are you always trying to be very aware of your surroundings, especially as the movement for you know, to mitigate violence against women have grown. These themes happen to be good entry points that the general student body that I teach, they kind of begin to understand from that perspective. I typically bring in immigration later because I also know for several people, they hear immigration and their minds start shutting down. So I try to place it in here, we are in the midst of you and look at what happens. And if you can understand this, you can amplify it, just Mm -hmm. as Aladdin is doing, amplifying some of these histories on stage. I want all of my students, of whatever race background they are, however long they have been in here, they need to be able to talk about our experiences as well.
1: Mm. And thinking about that question, what does it mean to be American, Bandana?
0: Uh, what does it mean to be American it has two parts to it. One part is, you know, you, you are American if you're constantly putting yourself within very complex networks and relationships with all other kinds of Americans, you know, with whom you're, you know, you deal with. That's one part. But the other part of being American, certainly for people who are BIPOC, that is Black, Indigenous, and other people of color to overgeneralize, that other part of being American is to constantly challenge racism, understanding it, challenging it, and trying to create conditions where that racism becomes unacceptable that it can be called out and there will be some action taken. Um, so that, that's how I would define Americanism. Mm. If, if it is about, you know, moving towards, you know, greater justice, then that justice includes being able to see every single person on human terms.
1: You've been hearing Bandana Perkayasta, professor of sociology and Asian American studies at the University of Connecticut. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Uh, you're welcome, and it was a lovely conversation.
1: I'm Lucy Alpethanchil. Today's show produced by Sujata Srinivasan. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow.